I was basically suicidal and I was laying in my bed Tuesday morning about nine o'clock and I was yelling at God, you gave me this life. You made me this miserable person. And I said these words, April, I said, you better show me right now that I have a reason to be here. Otherwise, I'm out right now today. I got out of my bed and I walked through my office and the light on my landline was blinking. And I thought, oh, that's weird. You know, who called me? And there was a message on that phone. Her adopted father had called and was looking for me. Welcome to Adoption Now, sharing real stories of the joys and challenges of adoption. Now here's the host of Adoption Now, April Fallon. Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today we have a story from California. Angela Rushing from HealingBirthMoms.com joins the show. Hey, Angela. Hi, April. I'm so glad you're here. Me too. I've been really excited about this for quite some time now, and I'm really, really honored to be able to share what I can with your listeners. How did you hear about Adoption Now? Well, I'm a birth mom, so I went on just kind of a search to find out what sorts of resources and voices that birth mothers had in the adoption world, because I felt like after lots of healing and lots of work that I had a story to share, and I knew there must be others. So. I did a little research online, just kind of looking for adoption-related podcasts, podcasts that apply to women and healing and stories of triumph and healing, and I came across Adoption Now. And I have to say, when I took a look at the actual website, I was just so blown away because I expected, I guess, more stories that were one in the same. And what I found was that you have so many different people that you've interviewed with so many different stories. And I was particularly touched by yours and Noah's stories. And I was really just pulled in. So I I just think that what you're doing is amazing. Oh, you're so sweet. I'm so glad you're on the show (laughs) because your story is so important. And I just am honored that you came on our show and trusted us with your story and that you are ready to really step out. I know that you're going to talk a little bit about what you've been through, but there was a time when you did not want to talk about this. And so you have really made a huge change and started speaking out about being a birth mother and about adoption and about what birth mothers go through. So let's start with your story at the very beginning. Okay. I was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I am an only child to an alcoholic father and a very, very passive-aggressive mom. Um, My dad had been married before, so I have an older half-brother and half-sister, but I grew up in a traumatic household alone, and my mother worked. She was the one that was the main breadwinner, so I really, truly was alone, and with very little guidance, my parents had zero tools. They were the classic people who probably should have not been parents. You know, it's like, let's just have a child and let's just see what happens is kind of the attitude that my mom had. And my mother always wanted to be a mom, but um, my dad did not want more children. So I feel like I came into this world with this energy of not really being wanted and definitely not being nurtured. So um, I kind of raised myself and I knew that I had to get out of Shreveport as quickly as possible because I did not want to spend any more time there. It's it's a really closed-minded environment there. So anyway, I moved to Chicago, which is where my older half-sister lives. And I 
went about having, uh, you know, I was a young hairdresser at the time. I worked in the best salons in the city. We were kind of like celebrities there. And so I had a lot of fun back in those days. I was 21 when I moved there to the big city and it was the 80s. So there was a lot of partying going on. And a lot of perms. A lot of perms. (laughs) Exactly. Lots and lots of big hair, lots of perms and lots of parties. So it was fun. And um, I found myself kind of running with the wrong crowd, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And long story short, I decided, you know, I need to get away from this. It, It didn't feel healthy to me. And I made a plan to move to Los Angeles, where I knew maybe three people. Well, it was during that time when I discovered I was pregnant. Now, backing up a little bit, I had had two abortions. I'm not ashamed anymore to say that. And I didn't want to do that again. I was young. I was without any guidance. I had zero support system. I didn't have a lot of money. I was having a lot of fun, but I didn't have a solid foundation when I discovered I was pregnant. And I had this feeling of just, I just wanted it to go away. I wanted not to be that girl that had gotten in trouble. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to my sister about this and I was kind of, I said to her like, what am I going to do? And she said, you know what? Why don't you look into private adoption, which is what it was called at the time. It wasn't really open adoption yet, but her suggestion was to check out private adoption through an attorney. And honestly, April, I was really desperate. I was really scared. I didn't know what else to do. And so I kind of blindly thought, well, you know, this is a great time to move. Okay, I can start over. I can pretend because, you know, now I'm operating with no strong sense of self because of the way I was raised. I never, ever felt like I was good enough for anything, being a child of an alcoholic household. And so I I remember just thinking, I'm not good enough to do this. I'm not good enough to raise a child. I am not good enough to stay here and face what I had gotten myself into. So I really kind of felt like I wanted to run. So this whole adoption concept was kind of, at first, it was just a way out for me. I didn't know what else to do. If you had had abortions before, why not just Mm -hmm. go down that path again? What stopped you? It was something my sister said. She said, you know, look, what if you want to have children in the future and what if you can't because of the abortions? And honestly, it was deeper than that. I never, I mean, I remember how I felt when I had had abortions in the past. I felt horrible. It's it's a deep rabbit hole to go into, but I didn't feel good about it. I didn't feel spiritually good about it. Mm -hmm. I have always been a spiritual person. I was raised Catholic, but I've been a deeply spiritual person. And it didn't feel right to me to do that. It felt almost looking back, I kind of feel like it was too much of an easy way out for me. And, And on some level, I think I needed to go through this lesson And I knew that in some way. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it's just amazing. I think later on I'm going to ask you, because we're going to talk about placement, but I'm going to ask you, what was the difference between the way you felt after an abortion and the way you felt after placement? But that's later in the show, because I have not had somebody on the show like this. And so (laughs) I just want to speak to both things. And, and, you know, with both situations, they're both not easy. 
You know, they're both difficult. And even choosing to parent is difficult. It's a difficult choice that you're in right now in your story. And so you are going to choose to carry this baby and look into adoption in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. I moved to Los Angeles. I was about three or four months pregnant when I moved here. And, And remember now, I'm still running away. You know, to me, that was like the ultimate gift. I was like, oh, great. I can continue with my plans to move. And nobody in Chicago has to know because I felt like a loser. I felt like a horrible person. I was embarrassed. I had so much shame about getting myself into this predicament. I had shame around adoption, which is very common. I've come to realize with birth moms, Mm -hmm. I had so much shame that I couldn't, I wasn't willing to deal with it. So I was really running. And I thought, great, this is the perfect opportunity for me to, you know, I've already planned to move. So it's perfect. I can move, I can get this done, and then I can forget about it and move on. That was my mindset. And I'm sure you know, and anyone listening to this knows that that's just not the way it works. You don't really forget about anything and just move on. So I did. I, I moved here to Los Angeles. It was January of 1989. And I really, again, no support system. I found myself an attorney who's still, I believe, practicing today. And uh, she and her staff helped me find a wonderful birth family. And we began the, the adoption plan and the placement process at about four and a half, five months into my pregnancy. How did they find a family for you? Did you look at a photo album? Yeah, yeah. At that time, it was, there was no internet. So it was a photo album, much like a family photo album. And I remember flipping through this photo album and not really connecting visually or spiritually with any of the people that I saw in the album. And when I came across the people that I ended up selecting, it was like I looked at their picture and I read a little bit of their bio and I knew, I knew because First of all, the adoptive mom looked very much like my older sister. Her family had come from the South, and their lifestyle was kind of what I had wished I had had. It just felt right. It's almost like when you, I'm sure when you met your children that you adopt, there's something in there that just feels right. Mm-hmm. And I met them. I loved them right away. And it was That part of the process was really actually pretty easy because I know sometimes adoptions fall through and, you know, people have placement issues and things. That part of the process was pretty easy for me. Did your parents know? Ah, no. My parents did not know. I didn't feel safe with them all the way through my childhood. So funny enough, my sister knew and she ended up telling my mother when I was in this process. And My mother was angry with me. My mother was judgmental of me for getting into this predicament. And funny enough, her solution was, why don't you just move back home and live with us and raise the baby? Which if you had known anything about the way I was raised was the most ridiculous suggestion because it was such an unhealthy environment. I mean, my mother is a lovely woman and she loved me very much, but she was not available emotionally to me at any point during my childhood. So to think of moving back there was the last thing I ever wanted to do. Did you ever um, think about keeping the baby? I I mean, not to move back, but did you ever think maybe I could do it? 
No, I never did. No. April, I never did. And and here's why. I knew, I've always been a pretty logical person, and I'm grateful for that. I was very, very aware that I had no tools, no emotional tools. I didn't want to be a bad parent, and I didn't want to continue the pattern that I had grown up with. And I knew myself well enough to know that because of the way I was raised, I was never particularly maternal, like I am with animals, but I didn't have a great experience of childhood. I didn't mm-hmm. have a nurturing home life. So some people would take that and want to redo that in their life. You know, I didn't. I was afraid to mess up. I was so afraid to make the same mistakes again that I, I didn't want to do it. And so during the pregnancy, there was never a time that I had wished that I could raise my own baby. I was too scared. I didn't want to be that poor girl um, with no money and no resources and no family support. It just was something I didn't want to do. And I didn't want to put my child through that. Okay. So you pick adoptive parents and you meet them and I mean, you guys connect. What did they do during the time that you were pregnant that you remember being unbelievable or amazing or kind or nice? The mother, the adoptive mother was very, very connected to me. And she was in contact with me pretty much daily and she just wanted to make sure I had everything I needed. Or, do, can I bring you groceries? Do you have something to play music on? Do you have everything that you need? And there was a time in the pregnancy that I had to be on bed rest. And I didn't have close friends here, so I was living alone. And I had to spend the last five or six weeks on bed rest. So I was actually admitted to the hospital to do the bed rest there since I didn't have you know, anyone that was living with me. And during that time was when she was really, really amazing to me. I mean, she would visit me. She would bring her friends to meet me in the hospital. She brought me food all the time. She brought me a boom box that I could play cassette tapes on. She brought me, she asked me, what kind of music do you want to hear? And she would bring me things. And she just was really present without being overbearing. And she was just very, she was just warm and lovely and amazing. And so caring and genuine that it really struck me. And her husband, who later they got divorced, he was a little bit more in the background. He was a little older. This was his second family. So he was more the background guy, but but she was just charming and wonderful and warm and loving. And that's exactly what I needed at the time. So she was kind of mothering you. Yeah. She was filling a role. That's Uh so amazing. I love that so much because I think about my adoptions and I want to be that to my birth mothers. You know, I want, I know that they have a story. They of course have a story because they are pregnant and thinking about adoption. (laughs) And, you know, I want to be a friend or mother like to them. And, And a lot of times I'm the same age as them. It doesn't really matter about age. It just matters about the care and the way that you can connect to her because a lot of times she needs, she needs somebody. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have anybody. I moved to a new city when I was pregnant. So it wasn't like I was going out, you know, meeting people. I really sort of holed up and I went inward during this time, which was great. I mean, that was amazing. But the point is I wasn't out making new friends, you know, and creating a support system. I was really kind of existing and within myself and creating this safe zone. And I was 
sleeping. I was eating really well. I was not stressed out. I, it was the first time in my life that I was actually able to just sort of relax and enjoy my life, which happens to be this was one of the most uncertain and it could have been the most stressful time of my life, but it really felt like the most nurturing and loving and protected time that I can look back on and remember in my life, which was, you know, kind of a dichotomy of it sort of astonishing to me even now. You use my favorite word. Anyone that listens to this show knows that dichotomy is my favorite word because I think adoption (laughs) is a dichotomy. There's a lot of great things going on with a lot of pain that's going on. And and so sitting in both of those feelings is kind of what adoption is all about. Okay, (laughs) so tell me about when you went into labor. Well, I didn't really go into labor. I had this condition called placenta previa, which is why I was in the hospital. And it was decided that I I had to have a C-section. So, you know, again, that's another dichotomy. Okay, some people are terrified of surgery. To me, I was like, great, we know when it's going to happen. I didn't have to go through the horrible labor pains. It was like a done deal. It was like, okay, it's going to happen on May 29th at 9.54 in the morning. And that was kind of it. So that part was not scary. I was really process oriented at this time. You know, again, going back, this was all like a thing that I had to do. I had to accomplish this. I had to get through it. I had to get on the other side of it so that I could start my new life in this new city and then go about the quote process of moving on. So I was really going through the methodical steps of this pregnancy. I didn't get really thrown into the emotional part of it until much later, you know, until after the fact when I started to really unravel what this meant in my bigger life. So yeah, the pregnancy, the hospitalization, all of that was really easy for me. And the actual surgery and the C-section, but it really gets juicy. The after stuff is where it all started for me. So you give birth to a healthy baby. Baby girl. Girl. And did you get to hold her? I did not hold her at that moment. The adoptive mother was in the delivery room. And I was really kind of, like I said, I I knew this was not my baby. Mm -hmm. This was never my baby. I never saw this as my baby. I never saw her as mine. Once I made the decision to make an adoption plan, I was not the mother. So I had started to cut that tie, you know, spiritually and in my mind much before the birth and the adoption process. So I remember being in the hospital and she held the baby and I never saw the baby after that, after the delivery. I never nursed her. I didn't hold her until the day that I was to leave the hospital, which because I had a C-section was three days later. And I'm sure now it's probably much different. You're probably out the door, you know, the next day. But at that time, uh, the baby was in the hospital still. I was not holding her. She was not my baby. But I remember it was the day that the baby was going home and the day that I was going home. And the nurse came in and asked me if I wanted to hold my baby. And there was something about the way she asked me. And I think that I could tell right away that they were sad for me. Mm -hmm. You know, they all gave me a lot of praise when I was in the hospital, which I was really a little uncomfortable with. They were all just like, oh, my God, 
you're doing the most amazing thing. And I was positive and upbeat and happy. And they, they really liked me having me in there because I was, you know, making the best of it. And there was something about the way that their demeanor changed after the birth. I think they knew, you know, that I was going to be sad. And she came in and asked me, you know, it's time to go. Do you want to hold your baby? And I didn't want to, but I knew I had to. And I said, okay, yeah. So I held her for a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes. And I looked at her little face and I looked at her nose. And I remember just making a note in my mind about her nose, that it was her father's nose. And I don't remember much after that. But where was the birth um, father? Uh, he was in Chicago. He had gotten involved in drugs after we were together. He had gotten involved in drugs and he was declining rapidly. And I tried to have a conversation with him about the pregnancy and he was incoherent. So I um, kind of lied about everything and just said, you know, I don't know who the father is. I, I just didn't. He was not in a position to make any kind of decisions. I had tried to talk to him about it. He was incoherent. He had become a, a heroin addict between the time that I had left and the time that I had given birth. It was really sad to see him decline that way. And I just, in the end, I just, I hope it's okay to say this. I mean, I don't know if it's even okay to say this, but I made a decision. Just, I, I didn't want to deal with a drug addict in my daughter's life, you know? It turns out that he ended up dying from his addiction only about a year later. Wow. I was never really able to have that conversation with him. So he was out of the picture, and um, I left the hospital, and I thought I was going to, quote, go on with my life. And I was really wrong about that. Oh, my <laughs> it goodness. It doesn't happen that way. Right. We have to take a break. Angela, this story is so amazing because you did everything you could to protect that baby. I mean, protecting yeah. the baby from people that you felt were unsafe, like the birth father or your parents. You did everything by yourself to make sure that mm -hmm. this baby was in safety. And that is just, it's just such an incredible story. When we come back, we're going to talk about what life was like after placement. You're listening to Adoption Now. I'm April Fallon. We'll be right back. Hi, this is April Fallon, the host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. We're going through some changes at Adoption Now. We're working on a new website and changing around our podcast just a bit. We love all of your feedback, ideas for shows, and applications to be on the show. Email us anytime at april at adoption-now.com. We would love for you to subscribe to Adoption Now podcast by clicking on the subscribe button on iTunes. Then you'll get a new story as soon as the podcast is released. Again, thank you for listening to Adoption Now. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today, we're talking to Angela Rushing from HealingBirthMoms.com. She's from California, and she's telling her story. She's a birth mother. And in this part of the story, she's already placed her little girl with the adoptive family, and she's leaving the hospital ready to just get on with her life and forget all about it. But that didn't happen, did it, Angela? No, that did not happen. It did to a point. I mean, I left the hospital. I went home. I had this body that had given birth. I had a giant scar from a C-section. 
and I went into denial mode. I went into denial mode, but I got horrific postpartum depression. I just want to say that that's very, very, very real. And I was so surprised at how I felt for about a month and a half or two months after I placed. I was horrifically depressed. I cried for a solid month and I wanted my baby back. I wanted that baby back. And I had said before that I didn't ever really want to be a parent. It all changed in the most unpredictable way. It all changed. I was so shocked at how I felt. I wanted my baby back. These people had paid hundreds, probably $100,000 to keep me in the hospital for that five and a half weeks. I want to also say that during the time I was in the hospital, I didn't have anyone. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm in the hospital. I'm here for five weeks. Will you come out and see me? And she said, no. So I really, truly was alone in all of this. Yeah. My mother was, you know, she was in her denial state too. She was like, what will I tell everybody? You know, because she said to me before this all happened, uh, she says, you know, you're going to do this and we're never going to speak of it again. 1989. This is 1989. Yeah. Okay. And this is the mindset I was carrying. It's like, it's like you, you take this, you do it, mm-hmm. and then you stuff it down. So I was trying to stuff it down. And it all came bubbling up in this postpartum depression. I wanted my baby back. I didn't care how much money I had to pay. I didn't have any money. I didn't know where I was going to get the money. I didn't care about anything except getting my child back. And this is where the support system comes in because I had a few people that lived in my apartment building that were just my angels. They were my saviors and they were with me during this process. And, um, one of them, basically she just talked sense into me. She said, you know, you're depressed right now. I just want you to breathe. I want you to cry. I want you to really think about this. And I got through it because ultimately I knew that I didn't have the tools to do this. So, I managed to get through that and I did manage to kind of stuff everything down and and start my life over. And I created a great life for myself. I mean, I'm not here to say that my life was terrible. I I created an amazing life in in Los Angeles. I've worked in the, the most famous salons in the country. I had a successful career. I became an athlete. I became a world traveler. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I've had an amazing, amazing, amazing life. So you can imagine that from the outside, everybody thought I had it all going on. <laughs> and but I no just, one knew. No one knew your no story, right? Nobody knew. I was living a double life. I had never told anyone. And I became a master at the double life. And I became a master at lying to myself and to everyone else. And it started to bubble up about 10 or 12, 15 years ago. I started getting horrific depression. I could not shake the feeling of being an absolute failure. It didn't matter what I did. I wasn't able to have a healthy romantic relationship because I had zero self-esteem. I just didn't feel like I was worth anything. I didn't feel like I was good enough for anything, but yet I kept adding things to my external life that made me so amazing. Like, oh my God, you're an athlete. Oh my God, you're a mountain climber, you're a scuba diver, you're a world traveler. And I felt horrible. Going back to our first segment, when we talked about abortion versus adoption, let's talk about the difference between the two and how you felt about them. I think abortion for me, because I can only speak for me, was an easy way out. 
And I think there was a lot inside of me that had to be worked out and a lot of pain. And I think had I had an abortion, I would have been able to just stuff that pain and keep moving through my life without ever really digging below the surface to really see what my real life should be like or was like. Uh, And I know that's vague, but I have really started to blossom as a human after the age of 45. I would have never done that if I had just gotten another abortion and moved on. I think that the adoption process caused me to really examine my life and why I ended up here. And it's opened me up to a whole world of compassion and compassion for myself too, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's given me a platform to express the parts of myself that needed healing and, and connect with others that have those parts that need healing. I just think that I've never been, you know, here it is, April. Things in life, you wouldn't know it by what I've said, but my life has been pretty easy. Like things have come to me pretty easily. You know, I I didn't ever have to really try that hard to be good at things. And I think this adoption was what I needed. I needed something that was just so challenging to just rip me open, to show me what I really had inside. I had no sense of myself at all, none. And this has given me, it's been good, it's been bad, it's been ugly, but has given me a real tool to dig into myself so that I could know who I was. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? It does. Did you have an open adoption? Did you see her at all? No, uh, I had the option of an open adoption, but I didn't really want contact. I just wanted it to be, I wanted to pretend like it never happened, I think. So you didn't get pictures? um, I remember asking for pictures. I remember them asking me, so how do you want this to go? Do you want pictures? Do you want contact? And I said, yeah, pictures would be great. And I never got them. I never really pursued them to give me pictures. But I mean, I did. I do remember kind of setting it up where, yeah, you'll get pictures and you'll get updates. And I didn't. But here's something really weird. My baby was adopted in the same city that I live in. And come to find out later, the strangest thing I worked at a famous hair salon that was connected to a collection of high-end shops and a restaurant. And it was where all of the celebrities would come. Annie's would bring the kids after their school and they would all eat lunch here. It turned out that my daughter was within feet of me probably a hundred times over the course of maybe six, seven, eight years. Wow. They were within 30 to 40 feet of me because they would come to the place where I worked every day after school and they would have lunch. And I never knew. I mean, I was walking around inside saying, I guess I did kind of know because I would ask myself and I would think about them and I would think, I wonder if I would recognize them if I saw them. And they were under my nose so many times I found out later. Wow. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. Okay. So you said that you're going through this really difficult time, this dark time of depression. What did that lead you to do? And you're in your forties at this time, correct? Yeah. I went through my thirties. I skated through my thirties. Life was great. I get into my forties and I start to know that she's a teenager now. I haven't told any of my friends I'm depressed. And there was a, a day in March where I was at home in my house on my day off. 
And I was so depressed. I was basically suicidal. And I was laying in my bed Tuesday morning about 9 o'clock, and I was crying. And I was wailing. And I was yelling at God. And I was saying awful things to God, which I won't repeat. But the gist of it was that, you know, you've never had my back. You gave me this life. You made me this miserable person. And I said these words, April. I said, you better show me right now that I have a reason to be here. Otherwise, I'm out right now today. And I meant that I wanted to kill myself. And I'm not sure I would have done that because I'm kind of a chicken. But I said the words and I was passionately screaming at God. I got out of my bed and I walked through my office and the light on my landline was blinking. And I thought, oh, that's weird. You know, who called me? And there was a message on that phone from my salon manager who told me that her adopted father had called and was looking for me. So I looked up at the sky and I said, okay, God, I get it. You work really fast. Wow, that's <laughs> that amazing. Was, that was the craziest moment because number one, I never, ever, ever since then ever have doubted the presence of a divine being in this universe, that to me became crystal clear in that moment that I was not doing this alone. And secondly, it meant I had to get it together and become the type of person that my daughter would be proud of. So that started the whole process of us reconnecting. And I was nervous and scared and I tried to get out of it. She was 17, almost 18. And we ended up meeting And that's where my whole life turned around in that moment. I don't know where I would be if I had never met her. It scares me to think where I would be if I never got to meet my child because of the path I was on. I was so depressed and I didn't want to live anymore. Tell me about the first time you met her. Where was it at? (laughs) What did you say to each other? Oh, gosh, this is another funny one. Um, So we we, we decide we're going to meet at this park. And of course, it was a park in the area called Pacific Palisades in the Los Angeles area where 90% of my clients live. And so again, I'm still living my double life. I'm like, oh God, what if somebody sees me there and interrupts this meeting that we're having? So we go to the park. I meet them there. I walk up. I could see them standing there, her father and her. And now I want to say her Adoptive mother had passed away of cancer when she was 14. So adoption's not always perfect either. You know, you think you're giving your child to a perfect scenario and and these life things happen. Right. So it was, my daughter was her dad and he saw me walk up and she had her back to me and she spun around and looked at me. And the look on her face was so funny because I think she expected, we look like sisters, you know, we look like, I look like I'm her older, older, older sister or something. And she looked at me and she was like, oh my God, oh my God, you're so, you're so young. And, (laughs) you know, I wasn't that young, but she was shocked at how much we looked alike, I think. And, you know, I think when you're adopted, when you see somebody that looks like you, it's like, oh my gosh, there's my, my mirror image, you know? Right. So we met and we talked for a few hours and One of the first things she said to me was, I just want you to know that I had a great childhood and I don't want you to feel bad about anything. So, I mean, that's just the person she is. She was raised very, very well. And she was raised with a lot of love from a very large extended family. So 
she um, is a great human being. And we went about the process of trying to build a relationship, which is tricky and interesting. And I was always very careful about letting her know that I wanted her to tell me what felt comfortable for her as far as how do you want to have contact, how often. You know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to smother her. I didn't, I wanted this to be her thing. Like, this is going to go how you want it to go. And so what is it like now? Well, now, okay, she's 27. She's in a serious relationship with the man that she's going to marry in a year or two. She's got a busy career and we've traveled together. We've had a great time together in her early 20s. And now that she's a young adult, you know, she has her own life. And she's kind of too busy for me, which is, uh, you know, that's kind of hard for me. But I always go back to, you know, Angela, this has got to be about her. So I do my best to never, ever make her feel bad for not contacting me. We see each other about, I would say, on average, probably once a month. We'll get together. We'll have dinner, you know, and when you're both really busy, that I know some people kind of say to me, like, oh, my God, that's it. But you know, she's busy. She has a relationship. She works. She's got a full-time job. She what has does a she great do? group of friends. She's in real estate. She went into her family's business and she now owns a couple of rental properties that she Airbnbs them out and she's really happy. So, you know, she reminds me of me when I was in my thirties because she has this wonderful group of, of friends. There are like 20 of them and they have dinner parties and they travel together and her boyfriend is amazing. And I really look at this and I think I did pretty good, you know, and she wouldn't have that if I had raised her, she wouldn't, you know, my family in the South, they're country people, you know, I would have been struggling financially. She had the luxury of having a wonderful college education because her family could afford to do those things for her. And I wanted that for her. I didn't have those things. So, so no regrets. No, no regrets. But and I don't really believe in regrets. But if I had to come up with something, because obviously we're human, I never had other children, you know. And I, I always thought maybe I would adopt one day, but I didn't. You know, I never got married because I'm still working out my own stuff. You right. know, mm-hmm. because that's a lifelong process, right? Right. Absolutely. So, isn't it? So. If I had to call it regrets and if I had to dig for something, I miss being a part of her life, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not the person that she calls on the phone when she's heartbroken. You know, I didn't raise her. What so does she I'm call you? First, she calls me Angela. Angela. Yeah. And she introduces me as her birth mom to people and, and she's very proud of me and she's, she loves me. And she always tells me, she's like, you're the most amazing person in the world. And I had all this love showered on me from her, her family when I first met them. And I was so uncomfortable with that because I still felt like um, I wasn't worthy, you know? Yeah. So that's been something I've had to really work on. And I'll say this, had I not done this adoption process, that unworthy piece of me would still be there. I mean, this is sort of, it's allowed me to kind of see the value of myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, absolutely. We had another birth mother on that talked about how 
the underlying issue is usually not the placement of your child. It's usually no. way other things that are a process yeah. to work through as well. But we appreciate exactly. you being on the show. One of the regrets I have when I listen to your story is that there wasn't anything for you after the hospital, after placement. There wasn't a place that you could go so that you could get mm-hmm. some healing or talk through it or even feel connected to other people who have placed. I mean, that in itself makes you feel like you're not alone. And it sounds like you struggle with that so much. And so now you are working on making sure that other birth moms do not feel that way. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Okay, exactly. And, and, you know, I want to highlight too, I was offered therapy and I said no, because what I've learned about birth moms is there's so much shame that we kind of want to forget what we did. And birth moms tend to hide out. We don't want to go to support groups, really. We want to kind of move on, right? And I've heard this from other birth moms. Mm-hmm. So the critical piece for me when I started to heal was when I started to talk about my experience and come clean and tell people what I had been through. And that tells me that there needs to be a little more openness and a little more acceptance. And that opens up the whole avenue for healing. And that's the, the critical piece to the work that I do. And, you know, I mentor and counsel birth moms. And my foundational piece to that is like, look, you're a human being. You're allowed to have feelings and flaws and to screw up. But you don't have to live in that feeling of I did something wrong. You know, and that's something I've heard Ashley Mitchell talk about. I have heard other people talk about on your show and the work that I do also with um, Life After Placement is a, a nonprofit that I also work with. The whole foundation of all of this that we birth moms, I think are common thread is that really you kind of have to own it. You know, you have to own it and you have to be okay saying, this is my story. There are other people that have this story. Why don't we connect with each other and take the mystery away rip the Band-Aid off and start the healing process because there's no healing in secrecy. There's no Mm -hmm. healing in non-connection. Connecting is healing. So that's the work that I do with other birth moms. I want to help them realize that what they did was not wrong and that there is healing by talking about it and by educating people on the birth mother process and, you know, mentoring these younger birth moms because for me, I wanted to be, when I showed up for my daughter, my one fear was that I wasn't good enough for her. And so I had to really dig deep and realize that, hey, girl, you have a lot of good things in your life that you can show her. And in doing that, I did show up as a complete and whole person. And I, that's what I tell all the young birth moms I work with is like, live your life, like do what you need to do. And when you get on the other side of this placement, Now is the time to connect, to share your story, to realize that other people have a story, and also to own every part of that story and to be proud of the person that you are. And yeah, now it's time to go to school, to get healthy, to get your body in shape, to get your mind in shape so that if and when you do meet your child one day, that child looks at you and says, wow, my birth mom is incredible. Look at how amazing she is and look at what she did with her life after placing me. You know, I think that's the ultimate goal is when you meet your child, you want them to be proud, right? Mm -hmm. I do. Absolutely. And I think that we as adoptive parents really emphasize, I don't know if everyone does, but we do in our family, 
your birth mother, your tummy mother gave you life. She gave you life. She chose life for you. And that in itself is an amazing gift. I mean, she could have gone off to write books or do these amazing things, but the core is that she gave you life and she made us parents. And so that's a great gift to both of us. And so we honor our birth families in our home. And I know a lot of adoptive parents are now doing that. And I just love that you are committed to the work that you're doing. You can find Angela at healingbirthmoms.com. There are other stories of other birth mothers on there and also her story. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, April. I want to also say quickly, I have a a Facebook group for birth moms and it's called the Healing Birth Moms Community Group on Facebook. It's a private group. So if anyone is listening to this and is a birth mom, join the Facebook group and, and you'll be in the community with other birth moms where we share positive stories and we connect and we help each other heal. Perfect. And send me a picture because everybody is going to want to see your daughter. We got to see how much you two look alike. I'll send you that right away. Okay. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook. And remember, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week.